Hello, everyone. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of The VectorCast, a podcast about classic arcade vector games. I'm your host, Michael Zenner, coming to you from lovely Portland, Oregon. Today, we will be discussing Atari's 1980 release, Battlezone. Battlezone is a three-dimensional first-person tank simulator in which the player battles tanks and cruise missiles on a barren moonscape. The elements of the game design make it a very early example of a virtual reality simulation game. Atari engineer Ed Rotberg, who had been the primary designer on the 1979 release Atari Baseball, was the primary programmer with help from Jed Margolin, Owen Rubin, Harry Jenkins, and Roger Hector. The hardware was designed by Jed Margolin, Doug Snyder, Mike Albaugh, and Dan Pliskin. The project manager was Morgan Hoff. Also, Howard Delman was back once again updating and upgrading the vector generation hardware. Battlezone was certainly a team effort, although Ed Rothberg gets the lion's share of the credit for designing the gameplay. It uses a 19-inch black-and-white vector monitor for the upright version, and there's also a cabaret version that uses a 15-inch monitor, and that's of course what qualifies it for inclusion on the VectorCast. The upright cabinet is a pretty significant departure from earlier Atari cabinet designs. The shape of it is more generally rectangular, and the back doesn't slope forward like most previous games, and the top is actually flat and level so the back goes straight up to a flat top. On the front, where most Atari games have a protruding control panel, on Battlezone, the control panel is actually inset from the front of the cabinet, and it slopes backward from the front plane of the base of the cab. The top section rises straight up from the back of the panel and just pokes forward a little bit as it goes up. The overall effect is a top section that really just looks way too narrow front to back to hold a CRT monitor. More on that in just a second. The most memorable feature of the cabinet, though, is right where you'd expect to see a display, and that is where you will find a large molded plastic cover that encompasses the front of the top half of the cabinet from just above the control panel up to the lighted marquee. Protruding forward from the cover is a viewport, which is also called a periscope by most players, where the player places their face, and that effectively blocks out the view of the room and focuses the player's vision on the display inside. As I mentioned, most players and collectors refer to the viewport as the periscope, and I've heard some less charitable players and collectors call it the incubator, or sometimes the pink eye factory. Below the periscope is the control panel. Once again, it's a single piece of bent sheet metal, like previous Atari vector games, and also like other uh, Atari vector games, the artwork is screened directly onto the metal. The style of the panel art is reminiscent, again, of earlier Atari vector games. The colors are bright blues, oranges, yellows, and reds against a black background, and there's a very simple diagram explaining how the controls work. The controls are a pair of textured joysticks with a roughly square profile shape, each one extending about six inches out of a broad black plastic flange. On the top of the right stick is a small unlit thumb button, and the only other control is a single start switch, which is a lighted volcano button. The side of the cab is covered in white vinyl, and the side art consists of a long rectangle with a semicircular end, which runs vertically up the side of the cab. Inside of the rectangle is a mostly blue landscape in which a gray tank with red and yellow highlights is firing an exploding projectile straight down the middle of the rectangle. At the bottom end of the rectangle are three circles, two of which contain images of gauges, mainly gray with red, yellow, and blue highlights, and the third one has a bullseye complete with aiming reticle. In all honesty, I've been looking at this side art for almost 40 years, and it wasn't until I was writing up this episode that I really noticed that the side art is, well, shall we say, sort of symbolic. The marquee features the tank from the side art, once again roving over a blue landscape with lines that converge in the distance, giving the ground a very grid-like appearance. 
There are a number of craggy gray boulders in the foreground, and off in the distance is a mountain range, behind which is the name Battle Zone in heavy red letters with a gray halo behind it. Finally, in the very back of the marquee, coming up about halfway up the lettering, is the top arc of a rising, you know, I suppose, or possibly a setting sun with stars and a moon above it. This might actually be the closest Atari ever came to representing the gameplay in the art. I mentioned a second ago that the cabinet looks just too small front to back to house a 19-inch monitor, and that's because it is. The monitor is actually mounted low in the lower part of the cabinet with the screen facing straight up. It's a similar arrangement to Asteroids Deluxe, which we discussed on the last episode of the VectorCast. The image from the screen is reflected off of a mirror, which is mounted in the upper part of the cabinet, and then the image bounces toward the player. On either side of the viewport, there's a side window, so spectators can actually move their faces in there and watch the gameplay as well, although you can't really stand too far behind the player and see what's going on. you got to be kind of close. Surrounding the gameplay images on the display is a printed cardboard bezel, which is designed to simulate the interior of a tank. On either side, there's some images of status lights and banks of buttons, and none of them do anything, of course. They're just printed onto cardboard. Along the ceiling are some metal seams. Again, the overall effect is of being inside a tank. The bezel actually bends down at the back and covers the top couple inches of the display. Along this top part of the bezel are three cutouts. On either side, the cutouts are rounded corner rectangles, and the one in the middle is a circle. The rectangular window on the right shows the high score, player score, and the number of tanks the player has remaining, and the left rectangle warns the player when an enemy is in range, which means it's on the playfield, and if it's not visible, it tells the player whether it's to the right, to the left, or to the rear. If the player's tank bumps into an obstacle or an enemy tank, it will also display motion blocked by object. The center window, which is the circle, is a radar display with a sweeping hand centered on the player's location with a dot indicating the relative position of an enemy. The dot starts out bright as the sweep hand passes over it, and it fades quickly until it's almost gone by the time the hand sweeps by again. The display is covered by two different colored gels. The lower part of the screen, which is the main play area, has a green colored gel, while the windows at the top of the screen behind the bezel have a red colored gel. The overall effect is really successful, I think, in that it allows the player to have a very obvious cue, which is the color, differentiating between information from inside the tank versus what's actually happening in the outside world. The cabaret version of Battlezone is one of my favorite cabarets that Atari ever produced. The main reason for this is that most of the really cool visual features of the upright cabinet actually got preserved. Most of the time when Atari made a cabaret, they really simplified the art package, and usually you'll find things like just regular black cardboard uh, monitor shrouds and things like that. But on Battlezone, behind the tinted plexiglass front bezel, the 15-inch monitor gets its own scaled-down version of the really cool printed monitor shroud from the upright, complete with cutout windows along the top, and once again the two different colored gels. Red for uh, the windows across the top to show you information from inside the tank, and a green gel to cover the screen that represents what's going on outside the tank in the world. The overall cut of the cabaret cabinet is almost identical to the Asteroids Deluxe cabaret cabinet. It's about four and a half feet tall, 20 inches wide, and about two feet deep. It has a small flat section at the top of the profile, just like Asteroids Deluxe does. And again, the control panel art is screened directly onto the metal. Like all Atari cabarets, the sides are covered with this great early 80s wood grain vinyl. Although this was another game for which Atari did offer owners the option of putting side art on over the wood grain. I'm still not sure how much I like that idea. I mentioned last episode that I'm not aware 
that anyone actually applied the official side art to a cabaret back when the games were new, and that applies to Battlezone as well. As with standard for Atari, the lighted marquee is a scaled-down version of the upright, and it's located in the front of the cab just below the control panel. The control panel, like many Atari arcade cabarets, is a slightly simplified version of the upright. The control diagram is there, as well as a scoring table, but it's mainly white and red against the black background. The control stick assemblies are identical to those used on the upright. In addition to the standard upright and the cabaret, at the very end of the production run, Atari built approximately 100 open face models. And these are upright cabinets with the large plastic cover, periscope, and mirror removed. The monitor on these is repositioned into a standard configuration. And the standard monitor replacement also requires an extension that goes on the front of the cabinet. Atari also released a conversion kit that allowed operators to make the same changes, and this of course works a whole lot better for spectators. Prepare for battle. Okay, on to gameplay. Like all other Atari arcade games, the game starts when the player drops a coin into a slot and then pushes the single blinking start button. The player is at the controls, looking out from inside a futuristic tank, looking over a barren sort of moonscape. Way off in the distance is the outline of a mountain range, complete with an active volcano, and over it all is a crescent moon-shaped object, which we find out later is actually probably a crescent Earth. Between the player's position and the mountains is a big, flat plane, and on the plane are a random scattering of obstacles, which are either cube shapes or pyramids. They're transparent, so they don't block any visibility, but they are solid, so they do block the progress of any moving object that runs into them. This could be the player's tank, could be an enemy tank, missiles will move around them or jump over them, and of course they will block shots. In the center of the screen is an aiming reticle, which is basically a box split into top and bottom halves, with a vertical line going up from the center of the top half, and another one going down from the center of the bottom half. When an enemy centers up in the reticle, it gets brighter, and the vertical sides of the square halves angle in, giving it a much more aggressive appearance. The player controls the tank by using two levers in what is generally called, unsurprisingly, tank steering. Each lever controls one of the tank's treads, so pushing both levers forward makes the tank move straight ahead forward, both levers back makes the tank move straight back. The left stick forward and the right stick back makes the tank rotate to the right, but while sitting on the same spot and the opposite orientation makes the tank spin to the left. Moving one stick forward or backward while leaving the other stick in the neutral position makes the tank turn while moving forward or backward. The button on top of the right hand stick fires a projectile. In Battlezone, the player can't fire again until the first projectile has either hit something or gone out of range, so only one shot in play at a time. The good news is, that same one shot at a time rule applies to the enemies as well. At the beginning of the game, a standard enemy tank is on the playfield, generally in front of the player and visible on the screen. We now commence one-on-one -on -one tank combat. So far, it's pretty simple. Shoot the tank before it shoots you. The player can hide behind the obstacles that are scattered around and jockey for position. Once the player dispatches the first enemy tank, another one will appear at a random location on the playfield. This time, it could show up anywhere, even behind the player and completely out of view. Luckily, the annunciator in the upper left-hand window will tell the player of the enemy's general location, and of course, the radar screen will give the exact location relative to the player's tank. There is only ever one enemy on the screen at a time, with one little exception that I will get into in just a bit. After the player has faced a few standard tanks, the missiles will start to show up. 
The missiles are guided kamikaze-style suicide bombs that descend out of the sky off in the distance and then start flying toward the player. The first one just comes down and flies straight at the player's tank, which pretty much serves to give the player a false sense of security. The second one zigs and zags a few times, but at the very end flies directly at the player, so there's a bit of time to take aim. After the first two, though, the missiles bob and weave, they jump over obstacles, and end up hitting the player from some weird angle. The path that they fly does have a pattern, though, and they come at the player's tank so quickly that the player can generally only count on getting one shot off before getting rammed. There is a strategy, though, which involves blasting a shot off as soon as the missile appears. If it's done right, the missile will explode far off in the distance as soon as it reaches the ground, and if not, the shot will likely go out of range before the missile hits the player, so there may be an opportunity to get in a second shot. Before long, the standard tanks will be replaced by super tanks. These are wedge-shaped tanks that move significantly faster than the standard tanks and are a much more formidable enemy. Once they start to appear, there won't be any more standard tanks, just missiles and super tanks. Okay, I mentioned just a bit ago that there was an exception to the one enemy at a time rule. While there is a tank or a missile on the playfield, there may also be a flying saucer or a UFO hovering just above the ground, usually off in the distance. The saucer will not appear on radar and it will often disappear when the tank or missile that's on the screen has been destroyed. The saucer does not shoot at the player or really pose any kind of threat at all, but if a player can hit it, there are some really nice points involved. So it mainly serves as a distraction to draw your attention and draw your fire toward this nice shiny big bunch of points. And meanwhile, the tank just blows you away. So that's a good time to talk about scoring. Standard tanks are worth 1,000 points. Missiles are worth 2,000. Super tanks are worth 3,000. And the flying saucer is worth 5,000. So the saucers can be a really good way to build up score. Just make sure, as I mentioned, not to get distracted by them, which of course is why they are there in the first place. The standard settings allow for a bonus tank at 15,000 points and a second one at 100,000 points. When the player hits the first one, there's a fairly unremarkable sound, but most players are going to understand that they have just gotten a bonus. At the second one though, the game pauses and then plays a really cool 8-bit rendition of 1812 Overture. <laughs> I think that is pretty cool. The game records the top 10 scores in a high score table, but a game reboot will reset the table to a default list. If a player manages to make the top 10 since the last reboot, in addition to getting to put in three initials, any player that manages to beat 100,000 points gets a special tank icon next to their initials. The world record for Battlezone was set on August 30th, 1985 by David Palmer of Auburn, California, who walked away from the game after 23 hours, having racked up 23 million points. He also left four tanks in reserve. So yeah, if the game was on the default settings, that 23 million for 23 hours was on his first tank. World records in Battlezone, though, will always have, in my opinion, something of an asterisk next to them. As it turns out, there is a glitch in the game. Now, it's not terribly well documented as to how to actually get the glitch to do its thing, but it appears that if the player manages to hit a saucer and a missile in really quick succession, the game will award somewhere between 3 and 7 million points. Now, I've never seen it, and I've been unable to find a clear explanation of just what has to happen to trigger this glitch, and if anyone listening has any more information on that, I'd sure love to hear it. My personal best on Battlezone is 277,000, and I would really get something of a kick out of having something obviously ridiculous on my high score table.
My own experience with Battlezone started in the game room in a hotel on the Oregon coast. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, my parents went in with some aunts and uncles and bought a share of a condo in a hotel down at the beach. The complex where the condo was had a small recreational building that had a little swimming pool, a sauna, and most important to me as a kid, a game room. Our uh, arrangement that we had allowed us to visit there for a weekend now and then, and maybe a week once or so per year. It was on one of those longer trips where I first saw Battlezone, which to me looked downright intimidating and scary. The periscope just made the game look like it absolutely had to be a totally immersive experience, and I wasn't quite sure if I was up for it or not. Eventually, I found that I was much more fascinated than I was nervous, and I don't think I left that game room for any significant length of time for the whole time we were there on that trip. I picked up some really good tricks watching people play, which I still use to this day. It took me a while before I got any good at all, but I clearly remember the nervous feeling of accomplishment the first time I saw a super tank appear. That meant that I graduated to the big iron and wow, did it feel good. Of course, I died shortly thereafter. Eventually, I got to where I could play for a reasonable amount of time, and I was able to fairly consistently make the top 10, and not just first thing in the morning when the scores had been reset. To me, the sound of the game playing 1812 Overture as an invitation to add my initials to the high score table is without a doubt my favorite pat on the back sound of any arcade game ever. Something else that's very special to me about Battlezone just from my own life. Battlezone, really, it didn't occur to me until I was writing this episode down, was the first game that I was ever beaten to as an arcade collector. The story there is that when I was uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, the early 80s in Portland, there was a store called Ability Games, which was a, an outlet for things like dartboards and pool tables and foosball tables and things like that. And of course, during the early 80s, they had arcade games as well. Most of the ones they had, I'm pretty sure, were used. But I remember one day, it must have been a weekend, I was able to talk one or both of my parents into taking me down to go take a look at Ability Games and just kind of see what was up as far as what it might take to actually own an arcade machine. And we walked in the store, and the first thing we noticed was the big sign that said, Hey kids, this is not an arcade. Don't come in here and play games. This is for, you know, these games are for sale, and we're looking to sell these to people who are looking to put them places and make money. So I thought, okay, we'll, uh, we'll put on our best behavior, and we'll walk around, we'll just look at stuff. And I noticed, oddly enough, and they had dozens of games there, and it was you know, everything that was big at the time. They had Missile Command, they had Asteroids, all that stuff was there. And most of the games there, in fact, all of them except for one, had a price tag on them that was $1,095. So that's what it was in the early 80s in Portland. If you wanted to buy a slightly used arcade game, you were looking at about 1100 bucks. Now, they had a big yellow special sign on top of, you guessed it, a Battlezone machine. And the Battlezone game was going for 300 bucks. Now, of course, instantly, I just about lost it. I thought about how much money I'd saved up, you know, basically in my piggy bank back at home and was trying to figure out how I could pitch this to whichever parent was there that, you know, if they could loan me the money to make up the difference that I would, you know, do whatever they wanted me to do for the rest of time or whatever. But of course, while I was thinking all this, there was somebody standing at the Battlezone game talking with a salesperson. And without realizing exactly what was going on in my little 11 or 12 year old mind, I thought, okay, as soon as this guy is done, I'm going to go up to that salesperson and I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I got it worked out here with my mom or my dad or whoever. Uh, you know, I'd really like to buy that Battlezone. I was 11 or 12. This is the kind of thing I did. And of course, the, at the end of their conversation that I was watching, the guy looks up at the salesman and says, okay, sounds great. I'll take it. So he walked away with the game. I walked away with nothing. 
And that is something that as an arcade collector has become incredibly familiar to me that you call somebody about a game and you have missed it by seconds. And that was my first experience with that. During development, the working title for Battlezone was First Person Tank, which eventually morphed into Future Tank. At one point, it was going by Moon Tank, and in the end, I think Atari definitely made the right choice. To Ed Rotberg and others at Atari at the time, the idea of a 3D game seemed like the next logical and obvious step for Howard Delman's vector generation hardware. As Rotberg told Retro Gamer Magazine in a 2009 interview, we realized that once we had it working, it wasn't a big step to doing 3D, end quote. After a very short period of brainstorming, the idea for an immersive 3D tank game emerged. Again, Ed Rotberg said, the inspiration came from those early overhead view tank games, which everyone loved, end quote. Now, while it wasn't necessarily a big step, there were a few technical considerations that needed to be addressed before a 3D vector game would really work. The hardware for Battlezone introduced a window circuit, which essentially defined a border for the game's images. Anything that might be drawn outside the border would be blanked, which just means the brightness level would be set to zero. This was done to prevent game graphics from being drawn in the radar and enunciator windows. So the main game action is contained in its own window, basically the same one defined by the screen bezel. Also, because 3D graphics necessarily involve a lot more computation than 2D graphics, Atari added a section called the Math Box. The hardware for this section was designed by Dan Pliskin and is based around the AMD 2901-bit slice chip. The responsibility for programming the Math Box went to Mike Alba. Finally, the vector generation hardware itself needed to be modified. The earliest Atari vector games, Lunar Lander, Asteroids, and Asteroids Deluxe, were based on the digital vector generator. In order to make the more complicated graphics work, a few improvements were developed, which led to the second generation of Atari vector generators, known simply as the analog vector generator. I've always found it kind of curious, and maybe even just a little bit ironic, that in so many other areas of technology that we use in everyday life, digital means newest, latest, greatest, and yet in the realm of Atari vector games, digital meant first version, and analog was the upgraded form. Anyway, there were a number of improvements made to the design, most of which involved making the whole thing work faster so more complicated vectors could be drawn. Most of these changes were very much behind the scenes and really require a background in engineering to really get your mind around. One important change, though, that most people will easily see is that the analog vector generator was actually finally able to draw lines with only the minimal amount of stair-stepping that comes basically from existing in a quantum universe. The earlier digital vector generator, while being extremely high resolution for the time, did in fact use a form of pixel type addressing, so diagonal lines weren't completely smooth, but that was now in the past. On the game programming side, even with all the improvements that were being built into the hardware, Ed Rotberg needed to apply some seriously tight and disciplined programming to get everything to work and to work well. Rotberg approached the project incrementally, starting small. As he told Retro Gamer Magazine in their January 2009 issue, quote, Where I started with Battlezone, like all my programs, was deciding how to store the data. I knew we needed stationary objects that would have to be described, and since resources were precious, the objects had to be instanced. Hence, I repeated the same shapes throughout the game, merely varying the sizes and positioning, end quote. Many of those shapes were designed by Harry Jenkins and Roger Hector. The next step was to establish a view of the world from within and project it onto the screen. Quote, once I got that and the field of view right, messing with the various parameters and your perspective divide, I started incrementally moving the camera around and putting in controls to enable a player to steer the tank. It was all theoretical until that point, but once I could drive around the playfield, 
I knew the math and data structures were working, and I realized it was different. No one had ever done anything like this. End quote. The process of building up the virtual world of the game remained a careful balance of adding in enough objects to allow the player to have some reference by which to navigate the playfield without adding so much data that the game's frame rate started to slow down. The mountains and the moon in the background were an exception since they were a simple backdrop and didn't require a lot of computation. Another clever bit of programming involved the graphical explosion when an enemy is destroyed. When hit, an enemy will explode, showering parts all over the landscape, at least until they disappear before the next enemy appears. The parts scatter across three dimensions and spin as they do it, and the trick is that the parts give the illusion of rotating through all three dimensions, but are actually only rotating in two. There is some clever manipulation along the vertical axis, and that gives the viewer the impression that they're actually rotating through all three dimensions, but you are being fooled. At this point, it started to become obvious around Atari that this game would be going somewhere. It was always a good sign when there were enough people walking into the lab to play the prototype of a new game that the engineers had to kick people out so they could get on with their work. And of course, this was the case with Battlezone. One of the more active players was Ed Rothberg's lab mate, engineer Owen Rubin, who got the idea into his head that the volcano in the background mountains should be active. It seems he asked Rothberg about this more than just once, and at one point, Ed, apparently reaching an internal limit, suggested that Rubin take a crack at it. And the next day, Ed found a code listing sitting on his chair, and he says, quote, It took me half an hour to integrate it, and Owen was very happy. And I never had to touch that code once I put it in. It just worked. End quote. Another detail was the image of the crescent moon over the mountains. During the time the game was going to be called Moon Tank, engineer Jed Margolin designed the thing in the sky as a crescent earth depicting the east coast of Australia on its surface. The background, despite being among the lowest cost features of the game in terms of computing and graphics resources, still became the subject of gaming legend. At least one story involves someone who knew someone who knew someone who had driven the tank to the mountains, found a castle hiding among them, and got some astronomical score for their effort. Jed Margolin described the story as, quote, news to me and to Ed, end quote. Battlezone was the first game from Atari to earn over $500 per week on field test, which earned a party for everyone at Atari. The game was officially launched at the Amusement and Music Operators Association show in the fall of 1980, where it was the big hit of the event, and it overshadowed an obscure and odd little game from Japan called Pac-Man. The official release of Battlezone was in November of 1980, and it went on to sell over 15,000 units, of which 2,000 were the cabaret version. Battlezone was quickly ported in some form or another to almost every platform imaginable. By 1983, there were versions for the Atari 2600, the Apple II series, the Commodore 64 and VIC-20, as well as what was known at the time as IBM PC and Compatible. In the next few years, the ZX Spectrum, the Atari 8-bit computer line, and the Atari ST series got ports, and by the mid-90s, there were ports for the Game Boy and Atari Lynx. In the following years, there were also several sequels and updated versions, including a full VR version for the PlayStation 4. Overall, the arcade release of Battlezone was certainly a success, but even more so, it was an important release in the history of games, both in the arcade as well as consoles and PCs. So, a creature for my amusement. If you're looking to own your own Battlezone arcade game, they're not hard to find, although at this time, like many other vector games, they appear to be gaining in value and desirability. I own a cabaret version, which I find to be an ideal form factor. The upright, while not 
actually much larger than a game like Asteroids or Lunar Lander. It certainly feels like it takes up more space. Really, it's that periscope. If I had more room, I'd love to have an upright, and I may get one in the future anyway. If you're the kind of person that likes to find the truly unusual, you might want to see if your potential cabinet has a small hole cut into each side near the top. These holes were discovered a few years ago on a few upright cabinets. They were most often plugged with white plastic plugs, but were obviously made at the factory. A number of collectors were understandably curious about what these were for. More recently, Tony Temple at ArcadeBlogger.com reached out to none other than Jed Margolin, who explained that at one time, Atari had planned to offer a mounting system for a second monitor, so spectators could see what was going on since the windows next to the periscope were small and required the spectator to get cozy. <laughs> it's pretty close to the player, and you know, possibly uncomfortably so. The holes were there to accommodate the mounts. Now, the system never materialized, and it seemed that the total number of Battlezone cabinets with the holes in them might not have been very many, maybe as many as a thousand, but very likely not more, and quite possibly a lot fewer. Regardless of what cabinet you find, the board set, because of all those extra hardware enhancements that were added, is now an actual set, not just a single board like we'd seen before. The set consists of the analog vector generator board, also called the main board, which is roughly the same size and shape as an Asteroids, Asteroids Deluxe, or Lunar Lander board. The second auxiliary, or aux board, is the same width and about half the length of the main board. A large 24-pin interconnect cable joins the two boards by way of a pin header on each board. The boards are mounted the inside wall of the cabinet with the aux board above the main board. Battlezone is the first Atari vector game to use an AR2 power supply board. The AR2 looks similar to the AR1 used on earlier Atari vectors, but it has a second section on the other side of the heatsink. AR1 boards are often described as looking like half of an AR2. A lot of games use AR2 boards, not just vectors, and there are a number of versions around. Battlezone uses the AR2-2 variant, which is Pretty much the universal version, which will work on any vector game, but other versions may not supply the voltages that Battlezone needs. If you use the wrong board and it's not compatible, again, you won't break anything, the game just won't work right. And if you're in doubt, it is possible to have nearly any AR2 rebuilt and converted to a Dash 2, and this is generally not a difficult task for those who rebuild and repair AR2s. At the bottom of the cabinet is a power brick, which will look very similar to the power supply that lives in the bottom of nearly any Atari arcade game from the era. It's got this metal frame with a big transformer and a bunch of Molex plugs sitting on it. Finally, there will be a black and white vector monitor. If your game is an upright that was sold for the US market, it will either be a Wells Gardner 19V2000 or an Electrohome Geo 5-802. If your game is a cabaret, the monitor will be either a Wells Gardner 15V2000 or an Electrohome Geo 5-805. I would direct your attention to the episode of the VectorCast where we discuss the black and white monitors that Atari used in their vector games if you want any further information on those. Like other Atari vector games of the era, you'll want to look for a solid cabinet that doesn't show any water damage. It's also a good idea to be prepared to rebuild the monitor, which isn't a difficult task for someone with basic soldering skills, or alternately, it's not a terribly expensive job to send to an expert. Also, something to look for on any Atari game that uses an AR power supply is to check the condition of the edge connector. I've talked about this in greater detail in past episodes, and I would refer you to those once again for further information. Another common point of failure among Atari PCBs can be the IC sockets. Atari used low-cost parts, and now, 35 years or more after their expected service life, they can fail. 
Replacing these can be tricky and it can be easy to damage your board if you're not careful. So if you're not confident in your ability, there are a number of skilled repair techs who can do this work. Finally, one of the major weak points in the Battlezone board set is that 24 pin interconnect cable. And my general feeling about that is when in doubt, just replace it. There are a number of aftermarket replacement cables that are available. Anyone who does harness work will most likely have an interconnect cable for a battle zone. In addition to the wires in the interconnect cable getting brittle and breaking over time, the solder joints on the headers of either of the game boards can also break, especially if the boards are moved regularly or the interconnect cables are detached and reattached. The solution is fairly simple for anyone with some basic soldering skills. It's just reflowing the solder on the header pins, and that just means heating and removing the old solder and applying new fresh solder. If you're already planning on sending the board to someone for repair or bulletproofing, which means taking some preventative measures to shore up some of the weak spots and head off potential future failures, then reflowing the headers is something that any reputable tech will do as a matter of course. Also, the added abilities of the analog vector generator had the effect of increasing complexity, which creates additional opportunities for failure. Battlezone has a built-in test mode, which can reveal errors in RAM, ROM, or the math box, and this can be a good way to get a nudge in the right direction. Finally, there are a number of high-score save kits available, most of which are what are called ROM savers, which bypass at least some of the old ROM chips. This removes a number of points of potential failure and also allows you to keep a record of your own accomplishments or, alternatively, someone else's. So that's what I have today on Atari's Battlezone from 1980. But wait, I hear some of you crying out, what about the Bradley Trainer? I didn't forget, I just realized that this episode has gotten long and the last thing I wanna do is really test anyone's patience. Don't worry though, Vector enthusiasts, I will be releasing a bonus episode in the next couple of weeks that will be all about the Bradley Trainer. For those of you who may not know what I'm talking about, well, now you've got something to look forward to. As always, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you felt like this was a good use of your time. If so, please consider subscribing. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you've got any suggestions or constructive criticisms, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on our website at VectorCastPodcast.com, Facebook at Facebook.com slash VectorCast, or Instagram at Instagram.com slash VectorCastPodcast. In our next regular episode, we will be discussing Atari's 1980 release, Red Baron, and I hope to see you then.